4: Good morning and welcome. This is Carl Dervin sitting in for Michael this week. Our programme this morning is going to be dominated in the early stages by the papal visit, but coming up later we will be talking to concerned parents in Kuldaki about school transport as the schools go back this week, and we'll be hearing good news for the students of St Louis in Dundalk, now open after the fire back in May. But we are going to begin with the papal visit, and joining me on the line is Sean Defoe, our political correspondent. Sean, good morning to you. Morning, Carl. It's been a very busy weekend for you guys, Sean, with the papal visit. Would you rate it a success overall, do you think, for the Catholic Church?
0: It's hard to know, and I think it depends on who you ask, whether or not it was success. So there's obviously been quite a lot of negative coverage in the build-up to this, and there's been right questions about the sexual abuse and the clerical abuse and different issues that have gone on, and I'll get to more on that in a second. But I have to say there were hundreds of thousands of people that we kind of forget about who did turn out this weekend who did celebrate their faith, who met the Pope or saw the Pope and had a brilliant time of it and think that he is someone who is going to lead the Church forward from what's been quite a difficult time. And Archbishop Jim Martin's comments were interesting yesterday when he said there's been a long winter for the Catholic Church and he hopes now it's coming to a spring. So for some of them, they may deem as a success. Now, on the other issues, those issues of clerical sex abuse, the Pope did address them while he was here. He asked for forgiveness, begged for forgiveness for those in the Catholic Church who had to hide them and cover up some of what went on. But a lot of the campaigners, some of the victims saying that while it's great that he's acknowledged it, he's gone further than he has before, we aren't any clearer on how exactly the Church is going to deal with that, how it's going to move forward and ensure that there's justice for those who suffered at the hands of members of the clergy. So I think a mix. I think overall probably not the success they were hoping for, but some positive aspects in there too.
4: It also seems, Sean, that the, the acknowledgement of the abuse and, and the Magdalene laundries and the mother and Babies homes, etc., that that only grew as the weekend progressed. That initially on Saturday there, w- there was a of a veiled reference to it, but then as as perhaps his, his advisors around him and he himself realised there was more to this than he was led to believe coming here. Uh,
0: perhaps so. I think they probably did orchestrate it that it would in the final mass and when there was the most attention on it, he would go most strongly, you know, and use the immediate attention there to to get his message across most firmly. It was interesting on the Saturday, as you mentioned, that veiled reference in his speech, he said there was a shame on the church, um, but didn't go much stronger. mass, the teacher of did, however, gave quite a kicking to the Catholic Church in parts of his speech, saying that there needs there can be absolutely no tolerance of it, but in one that was quite balanced as well and respectful for, for Catholics, and he talked about a new relationship with the Church. And then on the Sunday... The Pope's going and uh, begging for forgiveness, first in knock in a more quiet way and then very, very clearly and very detailed in about a seven minute, including I suppose it's a translation that was long, but about a seven minute part of his mass was dedicated to it uh, and that did build. So whether or not that was actually a concerted plan for him to do it later on in it, I, I think that's probably more of what it was. I don't it think may,
4: it was may though, Sean, it may have been a reaction to the meeting that he held with various survivors and, re- and representative groups on Saturday.
0: Yeah, I think he probably did want to hear from them I mean, and get their perspective on things and the Pope, certainly from what I've gathered and from talking to people who are around him, is far less comfortable around politicians and officials than he is around real people and by the sounds of the comments that came out of those meetings, he talked in much more direct terms to those survivors behind closed doors. He did the same in the Capuchin Centre when he was talking to homeless people, he was much more comfortable and much more at ease. That's where he likes to be rather than with the politicians and officials and talking. So, I think he probably took some of that feedback and maybe it was that he didn't quite fully understand the. I mean often when these things and you'll know from interviewing people you don't realise how harrowing they are until you actually talk to those people who survived it and you get their first hand account so it did build into the weekend as he said
4: There was some confusion as well as to his, his actual understanding particularly of the Chum uh, home scandal and also the Magdalen Laundry. because back in April Archbishop German Martin said he had informed the, the pontiff and that he was very upset when he was told about what happened in in the the laundries particularly but then this weekend he he told the survivors that he hadn't heard many of these stories before
0: Yeah and even on the plane home last night when he was going and he was asked by journalists he said he had received a briefing note and had received a memo in relation to him in particular and returned to the the mother of baby homes but he hadn't had the chance but he didn't know it in great detail so we're not sure to what level the pontiff was actually aware of this, I suppose we do kind of forget in Ireland, those mother and baby homes were a little bit of an outlier in terms of Europe. They weren't happening around the world at the same time. And Ireland, you know, was one small place where they were happening in the grand scheme of the Catholic Church's plans, if you like it that way. So he, how much he actually knows, uh, um, uh, we're not 100% sure, but I'd say it's a, a lot more now on this Monday than he did last Friday.
4: And he has, of course, been briefed as well by Minister Catherine Zappone, who presents him with a dossier on this, which he has said he will study.
0: And he will study and look into. And he spoke to Catherine Zappone, he actually, for the only time he went off script during his speeches on Saturday to mention whatever comments she said to him. We don't actually know what she said in full detail. She's expected to outline that today. But from what I understand, she spoke to him in Italian um, and really got some message across about the plight of people that went on enough for him to say that it deeply affected him and to go off script there. So it'll be interesting to see what exactly their conversation was in a bit more detail.
4: There were reports on Saturday after the meeting with the survivors and, and the rep- their representatives that he had said sorry to them for what had happened. But we, we never got a public declaration of sorrow, did we?
0: No, we didn't. The closest he got was asking for forgiveness yesterday and saying there was a shame. But there was a lot of people and different ones that I was talking to. So while there was welcome, I think those two words would have done a lot to pacify people, is probably the wrong word, but go towards that bit of healing. You know, he never said, I'm sorry. He never apologized for the action of the church. In the, the Saturday speech, it was almost a a case of, you know, I'm sorry that you feel hurt and I'm sorry that the Catholic Church, you know, did some of these things without really admitting the guilt. He went a bit further on the Sunday. And what was interesting, I thought, and what probably blunted the message that he was trying to get across is that very, very little of his engagements during the weekend were delivered in English. And the Pope does have some level of English. He studied it here in Ireland. um, He actually said he was looking forward
4: to coming back because he'd been here to study English, didn't he? He
0: he had, yeah. And when he was at the World Meeting of Families in America a number of years ago, he spoke English there and addressed the crowd in English. And I think that that would have actually made a difference rather than, you know, even in terms of just a PR move of getting your message across, when you're saying it and then having it delivered again to a translator, it doesn't have that same hope. If the Pope had said some of that to ask forgiveness, in English that's an image that would have gone and been beamed around the world and maybe that was part of his thinking that he didn't particularly want that they didn't want that PR message getting out there but I think it it did um, blunt what he was saying for some people
4: Now we saw yesterday in both Tioom and Dublin and even in Dundalk there were Stand for Truth group uh, meetings. I mean, there was 5,000 people at the Garden of Remembrance in Dublin. They're, they're saying there was a similar number at the say nope to the Pope outside the GPO. Did that get across to the Catholic Church, you think, that there is still this dissent, this anger, this feeling of, of lost trust in the Catholic Church?
0: I think it did over the full weekend. Whether the protests themselves actually made that message, I'm not sure. There was thousands. I mean, as the Mass was going on, you mentioned around the country, thousands of people getting out But I think the message that really will have got to the hierarchy and the members of the Catholic Church was the people who stayed at home and didn't show up at all for the mass, didn't show up for the events. I mean, we look at the attendance figures and while there's still some dispute as to how many were actually there in Phoenix Park, it was probably no more than 200,000, maybe 250,000 at a best push far less than the 500,000 tickets were given out, paling in comparison to 1979 when 1.2 million when a quarter of the country was in Phoenix Park to see Pope John Paul II. So I think that's where the message would have gone through, that this is a very, very different Ireland. There are still Catholics here, and there are many who still hold the faith close to their hearts, but they are disturbed and somewhat alienated by what's gone on, and there's a lot of work that still needs to be done to address that.
4: Why do you think the attendance was so low? I mean, one of the things that struck me was that it was painted to us that it was such a difficult thing to get to the Phoenix Park, that perhaps that put people off, the weather put people off, or was it a reaction to what's happened over the last 40 years since the last Pope was here?
0: I think it was probably a bit of a combination of the three. I think overall, even in... The wildest optimists who were saying there'd be half a million people here, they were already conceding that's going to be less than half that was there in 79 because of that change that we've gone on as a country and a nation. And as more information has come out about the mother and baby homes, about the different abuse scandals, I think the weather probably did play a bit of a part yesterday morning. I know certainly when I was getting up and getting ready to go out, the torrential rain, did I not have to cover? It might have kept me in bed The um, and the... Scaremongering is the wrong word, but the concerns that were raised during the week, I mean, it was about an eight-kilometre walk to get in and out of Phoenix Park yesterday. There weren't the likes of mobility scooters. Those couldn't be brought, even though the infrastructure that the state put in place actually got people to there and out fairly smoothly, there was a big fear for particularly older people they might not be able for it, they might not be up for it. Even the fact that they told everyone there was a morgue in the park, I mean, you know, that's uh, that's sending a particular tenor of what they were expecting. So I think it's probably a combination of the three led to the lower turnout.
4: And was there a, a factor perhaps as well that some people uh, deliberately snapped up tickets to stop people going to see the Pope? They had no interest in going, but they took the tickets to make sure that other people didn't.
0: Yeah, there probably was, but I don't think that accounted for a huge amount. I mean, that was maybe a couple of thousand tickets, but I the, I, the general tenor around that when people were asking was this, look, if you, you have your right to protest, you, you can go to one of the other protests, but if you were keeping a ticket away from somebody who actually wanted to be there now in the end, it didn't make that much of a difference because there was plenty of there would have been plenty of tickets to go around, but you, people still have the right to practice their faith, be it Catholicism or be it whatever, and but- to go. So while that counted for, I'd say a few thousand, I don't think it's made a huge dent.
4: Those I've heard speak uh, who were present at the various events be they in Dublin or knock have said Sean that there was a feeling of, of love and serenity about this and that there was a humbleness about the man. Would you share that?
0: I, see I didn't see a huge amount of those events up close. What I saw of Pope Francis was very different from the man that we hear about in the media, this great reformer who brings a great energy to us. Uh, while he did have great energy, as I said, when he was meeting regular people as opposed to the politicians and opposed to the officials who were there, uh, I'm not quite sure that I, I saw enough people to be hugely inspired by it. Now, there are some who are of a Catholic faith who say, you know what, it was brilliant to see him. And even when you were watching in the Phoenix Park from the riser that we were on, As soon as the Popemobile was going around, there were people sprinting across fields to try and get closer to him. They were reaching out, they were getting selfies, they were doing all of that. So I think for people of the faith, he had quite a profound impact and people were very, very happy to see him and delighted with how the weekend went. I think for those who are maybe questioning their faith, I'm not entirely sure enough was done to bring them back into the fold. I
4: have a double-edged question for you, if you don't mind, Sean. I mean, what do you think the Catholic Church will want, his legacy of this visit, and what do you think the actual legacy will be?
0: I think the Catholic Church will want the legacy to be something of a new spring, as German Martin talked about in his Mass yesterday, that this was the point where all of the bad press of the last 40 years, all of the bad things that have gone on finally turned around and they got the chance to push back and to bring people back and to those who are Catholic but feel alienated will start to go back to the Church and actually believe that things can be changed and be different. The actual legacy of the event, I think, might be slightly more disappointing. What will decide it is is whether it, this is a catalyst for change and whether his words this weekend are actually translated into actions in the next couple of weeks and months that will see some sort of justice, some sort of truth and more information for those who survived the mother and baby homes and those who survived the, uh, the clerical sex abuse and the various things that went on. So the test of this visit and how strongly the Pope and the Church takes this will be over the next few months and seeing what actually
4: happens. Finally, Sean, before he, he even got the touch down back in Rome, uh, His Holiness was asked about the allegations made by Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano about reports that he presented to him in 2013 that Cardinal Theodore McCarrick was abusing children and, and should have been kicked out of the church. And it's only recently that action has been taken properly against Cardinal McCarrick, who's the most high-profile um, paedophile, for want of a better word, in the Catholic Church in America. What, what do you make of, of the Pope's reaction on the flight home when he said he was not going to comment on it, he will read it, he had looked at the report already, he will study it, but he was up to journalists to discover what went on.
0: Uh, well, he, it was a very astute political sidestep, I, I would think. A, a lot of the... the some issues around the credibility of what the bishop has said. If you're trying to analyse it from a journalistic point of view and trying to do it from a completely neutral standpoint, he said to go and read it and to look into it and that he would answer in due time. I think that's you know quite a neat sidestep of the issue without actually coming out with a straight denial. And look, that's part of the problem that the church has had all along. They've never really addressed these issues up front and been very categorical about it. You know, It's not the way that they communicate along. So I think... Having not read the full letter myself, but I can't go into a huge amount more, more detail on it, but that will have to be examined again, and I think once it is, if there are still issues there about what Pope Francis has done, we'll actually have to engage with it and answer those questions.
4: He's not going to resign any day soon, though, is he?
0: Uh, I doubt it. We've only seen one Pope resign in the last couple of hundred years, and that was his predecessor. I doubt he'd be making it two in a row.
4: Sean Defoe, political correspondent. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Now, listening to all of that was John Kelly, who's the coordinator with SOCA, the survivors of child abuse. John, good morning to you. John, can I get your own reaction to the papal visit, first of all, please?
5: Um, I was hoping for much, much, much more. But I, looking back on it, I, I think it's what I expected, to be quite honest. I didn't, up to now, they haven't actually confronted the abuse in the way that we wanted to. Acknowledging is one thing, being sorry about things is another no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad in fact he made apologies, but he'd made an apology previous to that, But that was in relation basically to what was happening in Pennsylvania. Uh, it, it does appear in America is a diff- wholly different ball game because they've confronted it in a different way than we have here in Ireland. For example, I mean I I I, I listened to the Taoiseach uh, shocks when he said, and he's take pride in telling the world that. We have a statute of limitations. There are no statute of limitations, all the rest of here. And he's urged the Pope to take action. And that was all well and good. But, and the, the teacher mentioned that, in fact, in the past, when we were children, the state colluded. But the fact is, what he, the teacher failed to admit was that the state actually colluded uh, in, in, in the cover-up now, because no one was ever prosecuted here in Ireland... Even though we had an inquiry that said there was tens of thousands of children that was physically, emotionally and sexually abused, not one person was charged, not one person was even, as a result of that inquiry, was even um, named. So uh, looking back in the whole, I, I, I felt rather disappointed, to be quite honest, I really did. Uh, I, oh, I mean, the, the crowd itself tells it, tells it a story that you know people here in Ireland have difficulties uh, why the church isn't confronted and facing up to it. I really expected him to say well actually I would hope to, rather than expect to say that alright we know about the abuse and everything else now we feel that that these people should be handed over to the police but they seem to be doing it in some looking for divine intervention and asking for prayers I mean
4: it was I, more it was more about forgiveness than sorrow wasn't it
5: yes but for, well let me give you an analogy if, if um, say you a father was to abuse his children and this is basically what the teacher in, in a sense was saying when he talking about a new relationship in the beginning imagine him turning around to his wife and say, I think we should have a new a fresh relationship without facing up to what he probably has done to the children and that sort of analogy so we have to face up to our past uh, you know
4: and you clearly John you saw nothing this weekend from either the government representatives or the Pope
5: I just Got distracted for yeah. a second
4: I'm just saying uh, you, you, you saw nothing or heard nothing this weekend from either the government representatives or the church to suggest that redress and retribution will be down the line
5: well, <laughs> well leave the redress out for a moment in fact justice what has always been this is what has always been about and that's what we represent over 5,000 victims out here in the, in the United Kingdom because half of the Irish people that were in the institution fled to the like I did for a for 40 years, but and this is the sticking point justice. Now, you, you've, you've mentioned uh about uh Carla Maria Vegano, Archbishop. Now, if you take Theodore McCarrick, Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, that came out some five, four or five years ago or something. So, what is the Pope doing about that? What is he again, they're looking inwards, they have this inward thinking that sending them to penance, sending them to penance. Send them to the police. They, for some reason, they don't want to confront this issue. Now, if, if there's any other industry in the world, you know, people hand it over to the police. And that's where it is. I mean, in my case, I've told two cardinals, uh, two t shocks, many bishops, including Bishop Martin them, that the guy who abused me, who's alive today, resides between a school and a church, a school with young children. I said, forget about what he did to me. If you're going to do nothing about that, clearly there's no justice for me in that. But at least he's amongst children now. And I think this guy's still there.
4: In, in terms of, of the, the Pope uh, said that he wasn't that aware of, of the, the, either the Magdalene Laundries or the mother-in-home uh, situation down in Tune, for example, where over 700 babies were, are, are, were left to rot in a septic tank. He, there, there is evidence from Archbishop Dermot Martin that he told him about this in April, yet that didn't seem to, to register this weekend.
5: Well, you see, and that's a very vital issue because we made a point that, you know, the world, uh, of are families. And we made a press release where we look, you know, it's a, a total misnomer. They wreak havoc. It's huge for seven decades. They wreak havoc on families here. And in in respect irrespective, their, their children were taken up, put into institutions such as I was. Now, we're talking about war crimes in the sense that, I mean, being viciously flogged naked, sexually abused. all whole thing happened to me, just me. Now, I'm sure that happened all over the place from thousands of people. Uh, you take the Magdalene the mother and baby homes, you know, children taken away from their mothers. In some cases, even past or sold to America. Uh, the young parents, young daughters, the, you know, into Magdalene homes. and bearing in mind what Mary Magdalene Mary Magdalene was a prostitute that's what they were calling the young women of Ireland so how can they be responsible for uh, oh we respect and love families, they wreaked havoc here so he didn't actually and I think he, he does know now he's previous I, we we're of the, the understanding that his predecessor was ousted and this goes to the core of it it really does Cal You have a curate of cardinals, basically like it's, they're the cabinet, his cabinet. And they're so conservative that they want self-preservation. Well, we know a couple of cardinals now have abused. But these cardinals, they're looking at self-preservation. They don't want any inquiry into them because the whole system, the edifice will fall down.
4: John, we thank you for your time this morning. Uh, clearly, you, you're, you weren't that impressed with the weekend.
5: No, I, no, I have to say, I was very, extremely disappointed. I was hoping, and hoping against hope, but it turned out effectively what I expected.
4: John, thank you so much for your time this morning. We'll be back after this.
6: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM.
4: Good morning, Cahill. Good morning to your listeners. How are you? Can I ask you, is your reaction to the papal visit very different to the reaction we've had already this morning on the programme in terms of was it a celebration of Catholicism for you?
7: Well, I was listening to Shauna and John there now, and, and I suppose it was very different in that I was I was here present for the last ten days, you know, and uh, involved uh, in in participating from the from the delivery side, you know, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm exhausted this morning after a very very hectic uh, number of days. Uh, I got saw none of the television coverage of it because we don't have a television where we are here, um, but. Um, yeah i suppose for, from from my point of view it was it was a really um fantastic gathering of families uh, taken on board that that's what we were working with was the, was the world meeting of families i think as an event it went very very well um the 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 weather was was good to us um for at least up until yesterday yesterday you wouldn't put a cat out in but mm. uh, even even at that um i went a long walk to 15 kilometers um to the phoenix park of the blisters to show it today and uh, you know what struck me yesterday was just a, a, a wonderful sense of, of togetherness for those who had walked the, the the walk to the to the um phoenix park um i was sitting in one of the crowds way 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 back from the screens and uh, uh, what really struck me yesterday i mean it, uh, as, as the, the, the movement of the people was going along, was just the number of young people who were there. And that really, really surprised me. But, I mean, it didn't surprise me in the sense the weather was so bad that you wouldn't put a cat out in it, um, uh, certainly when we started out at the beginning. And there's a few times during, the, during the, the mass and the warm-up to it, there were ferocious gusts of wind and... and uh, mm. It would have made it very difficult for for older people, which I suppose a lot of older people would have liked to be there. But the, the, taking them on board that they've joined from their homes and watched on their TVs, you know, I, all in all, I think it, it was a good it was a good week.
4: How did the Pope come across to you personally?
7: Um, I didn't get anywhere next to mm-hmm. near him. To be honest with you, I think he 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 stretched himself very much in terms of his energy. Um, He's 82 years of age now in, in December, uh, working on one lung and 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 being faced with just such a, a plethora of, of difficulties. You know, the Irish visit must surely have been a very difficult one um, just mentally to try and get his head round um, with all the different um, hurts and pain that, that's here in the country um, because of church and then, and then the worldwide picture as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard, I suppose, in some ways to... to Separate his, um, his task in coming here, which uh, from the, from the get go was to participate in the World Meeting of Families. But um, by and large, this was the expectation of many, became that it was somehow to, to try and deal with the whole issue of um, the, the abuses of the past.
4: But that, that, was, that was to be expected, was it not? Um, I think it
7: became the expectation of the media. Um, more than it wasn't his expected um, his, his expectation was to participate in the World Meeting of Families and to give encouragement to families who were participating at that you know and you sure think, do, you think that's why,
4: do you think that's why his message changed as the weekend progressed it, it became more and more about the Magdalene laundries about the mother and baby home etc and, and the plea for forgiveness became greater as the weekend went on
7: yeah, I think I think he responded to the different situations that that he was being confronted with as as he went along, and uh, you know after his meeting with the the survivors, I think it was eight that, that met with him there again. I'm, I'm saying this in the absence of having seen any of the the coverage mm-hmm. on this at all, but uh, I think he he clearly um, made an effort to to respond as immediately in the sense of I can. I think one of the survivors I heard had asked. That he would include in the mass um, a, 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 an acknowledgement of her story, and I, I think he did that um, pretty well yesterday. And he, he actually he
4: actually read. To be fair to him, he read from handwritten notes, which was way off script.
7: Yeah, and he he would have had to work his way around that, I suppose, on um, on the plane, probably from from Knock back to Dublin or whatever. You you, you mm. managed to to put that in, but I think his meeting from, by all accounts, with with Ke, with. Um, Brother Kevin was very good. I think, to be honest with you, from the, the one bit I did read was the release, uh, the, the press release on Leo Varadkar's um, pre- speech uh, in, in Dublin Castle. And, and I'll have to say it comes across as an extremely reasoned and balanced uh, presentation of the actual situation, and you know, in and it, um, I don't know is it is it, is it missed on many people, but he's actually speaking of the failures of state and the wider society and church.
4: And we've, you know, we've, and, heard, and we've heard John Kelly refer to that just now.
7: Yeah, the history and this of sorrow and shame. You know that 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 is a shadow on on and a blight on on the whole country. Um, so that in that, in itself, I think was good to 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 hear an, a note of balance um when you 're working within the the specifics of church as as I find myself um it can very often feel like as if you know that you're you're just caught up in in a whirlwind of complete negativity now for me yesterday and over the last number of days, there was something of uh, of a cushion um, in that many, many people who were there, well everyone who was there was there for their own reasons and they they were there because they wanted to be there. But they were certainly bringing a note of encouragement um, to me and to to all the other people on the ground who are and who make up church um, to say that, yes, you... We, we we need you, and um, we need to continue trying to, to be um the church that Jesus Christ wants us to be and that that involves sitting with your people. I chose yesterday when we went to the Phoenix Park rather than going up to where the concelebrants were and I don't I don't even think they got a chance. They were right up beside the altar. I don't think they even saw um Pope Francis while they were there. But I stayed down in the crowds with the with the with the the, the sheep, as to say, and uh, it was a, it was it was really a, a a very good experience. I mean, we were we were all blown away together. At, at times, the rain lashed down uh, at the same time, and yet there was almost like a a, a picnic atmosphere um, going on. there and it was lovely to see the the. the the positivity of spirit uh, uh, and generosity of of the people who had who had walked that distance. Like, uh, we, we thought we did well parking near enough to the Phoenix Park, and yet we had fifteen kilometres to walk. You know, well, so uh, uh, it, it it was it was a big it was a big ask on a very bad day.
4: Well, Father Michael Cusick, rector for Saint Joseph's Redemptors in Dundalk, we thank you for your time and your contribution this morning. We'll be back after this.
6: Michael, Michael Reed on
4: LMFM. FM. This is the Michael Reed Show, and we thank you for joining us this morning. Now, by the end. Of of the week. Students up and down the country will be back to school, but for the students at St Louis Secondary School in Dundalk, it's a very special week as they return to their school following the devastating fire there in May. Before we came on air this morning, I spoke to Michelle Dolan, who's the acting principal of St Louis Secondary School, and I asked her how great it is to have the school open again.
3: Yes, good morning. I'm standing here um, on the top floor of the school, just looking over the Castletown River, and it's a fantastic morning. I'm just delighted to be able to be back in school on time. We, um, you know, we had the fire in May, and there was an awful lot of worry and a lot of work done over the summer to make sure that the school would open this morning. So I'm delighted to say we're ready for business, and the place is looking marvellous.
4: Bring us back to that Saturday morning in, in May, and y- y- your, your thoughts when you when you arrived at the fire and saw what was happening in front of you.
3: Just, just incredible. Hard to believe. You know, I, um, I, I was going to do the walk, the darkness into light walk. At um, so I was up early, and I was about to leave the house when I got the call to say that the school was on fire. I rushed in, and the, the scene that there was an inferno. Honestly, because it was a wooden building, and uh, just on the night, the conditions it was really, really took off. And uh, I was very concerned about the whole school going on fire. It was very, very close to the main building. But the uh, fire teams were incredible and they really focused on keeping the main school safe and they were able to protect us from, you know, the ravages of the fire in the main school. And thankfully, they did a fantastic job and they were able to just, we lost that one small building in the middle of the school courtyard, which was a very old wooden building, but it it was the only thing that we lost really on the night.
4: And of course, one of the primary concerns at the time were were the exam students. There was a great rallying around from, from the local community and from the local educational community, wasn't there?
3: just incredible. On that morning, even that Saturday morning, call after call from colleagues in different secondary schools, um, colleagues from the Department of Education, from far, far and wide, So, what can we do? Is there anything that we can do? And one of the calls was from Michael Mulvey in DKIT. And just maybe fortuitously, at that point, he was ready to send his students into exams. So some classrooms were free in DKIT. So I asked him, I know I said, Michael kind of cheekily, would you have 20 rooms? Like, would you have 30 rooms? And he said, you know, we probably would and from that moment he was just so generous opening every door for us anything that he and his team could do for us there was just no stone left unturned and then again the state exams were incredible they came in they rolled in and made sure that everything was you know as it should be for the girls doing their exams and the, the um, Department of Education, the buildings unit, anybody who could get involved, the transport unit, they were here that weekend helping out and they giving given advice and getting things up and running. So we were back in school on the Tuesday in DKIT, which was incredible.
4: And, and as, as a side effect of all of that, some of the students have now seen what third level colleges are like and maybe yeah. it's opened up an opportunity for them.
3: It's fabulous because they had some of the DKIT schools of engineering and hospitality, etc., came over and asked, can we take the girls to see our facilities? Can we show them what a the lesson would be like? Even just moving around that campus, being in that, you know, tiered seating and having the access to the IT and the wonderful cafeteria and all of that, it did really, you know, show the girls what we have on our doorstep here from the point of view of third-level college and the options that they have, as well as, you know, looking further afield as well, maybe to third level at the university in other parts of the country. So it's great great for everybody.
4: And I'm sure your own staff must have rallied around as well, Michelle.
3: My staff, they were unbelievable. I just just said that afterwards, I I realised not one person called in six for the six weeks after. There was no issues at all. They were there from eight in the morning till four at night. They had to supervise the girls all the time. Like that was the concern around child protection. So we always had to have them supervised at every moment. People, I don't know, they had pedometers that they were running around DKIT. (laughs) They were getting fitter and fitter by the weeks with trolleys of books and making their way from place to place. You know, to make sure that the girls got their classes on time and that they were all supervised. So. There is an incredible spirit here. There always has been. People talk about it all the time but really I saw it in action in those weeks and I am really excited this morning to show them all the work that's been done as well and I know there'll be a great buzz when they arrive here uh, this morning for their first meeting.
4: And the great news is that the 50s are the first group back in today.
3: The first group are back in the fifth years, and they're coming back to a building that's been completely refurbished. It's beyond our wildest dreams. Rewired. There's, you know, everything that's been had to be done to the block at the back that was affected by the utilities being burnt has been has been done by the department. We've got a brand new technology suite, brand new art room, library, and um, everything that's been done: glazing, painting, Wi-Fi, alarms, trailer alarms, CCTV, anything that you could dream of in a school they've done for us, just to bring us into the 21st century. I think when they came down they saw, you know, maybe the, the, some of the facilities weren't what they should be for 21st century education and they've made sure now that things are up to scratch so I'm just delighted. Delighted for the girls and for the families as well. So it's going to be a great a great start to
4: the um, year. And by the end of the week all classes will be back up and running?
3: Yeah, every class, they're all going to come in every day this week and we'll be in class Friday morning with everybody in, in class so I'm looking forward to that as well as to walking around and to having everybody back. Because the teaching and learning is the centre of what we do, obviously, and nourishing the girls, making sure that they're happy so that they can learn that's, that's our job here and that's what we're looking
4: forward to doing now. And that is Michelle Dolan, the Acting Principal of St. Louis Secondary School in Dundalk, now back open for business thankfully after that fire there in May and we thank Michelle for taking time out this morning on a very busy day for everybody at St. Louis in Dundalk It's also a very busy day in Navan, where the seven magnificent candidates who would like to be nominated for President are seeking the support of councillors on Mead County Council and joining us from Navan. I'm delighted to say is our Senior Reporter Casey O'Riordan. Casey good morning to you
2: Good morning, Carl. How are you?
4: Give us an idea, Casey, of the procedure this morning. The seven candidates, including the two local candidates, Jimmy Smith and Gavin Duffy, will present their case to meet County Council. How does this work exactly?
2: So they have the opportunity to meet with with local councillors here to make their case. They'll have 20 minutes to impress and then a 10-minute window where councillors have the opportunity to ask questions if they like. And the time is going to be really strictly adhered to. I I spoke to uh, the Cahirlock who will be chairing the, the, the meeting Tom Kelly, I spoke to him last week and he said that due to the fact there are so many and um, we don't want to be here all day, it'll be strictly a half hour per candidate all in and then councillors will have to make up their decision based on that.
4: And I see that the first two in are Jimmy Smith from Navan, 10 o'clock to half 10 and then Gavin Duffy, resident in Meath and from Drada. A lot of interest in those two candidates.
2: Yeah, so Jimmy Smith, I suppose, you know, we wouldn't be as familiar with. He is a local musician and Gavin Duffy we're, we're, well, we're well familiar with at this stage. He's made no no bones about the fact that he he is trying to get a, on the bid. Um, Gavin definitely has arrived. We've seen him here um, so far. And the other candidates that we've seen arrive have been Senator Joan Freeman and Sarah Louise Mulligan, who's due to come later on.
4: Now, Jimmy Smith, uh, Casey, by the way, you're showing your age there because those of a certain age would remember Jimmy from his days with the bogey boys, etc., how much support can these guys expect to get this afternoon and this morning?
5: Well,
2: I mean, look, a lot of ca- a lot of councillors ha- have already made up their mind and that's evident in the amounts that have shown up today. Some some that are coming here will already know who they're voting for and maybe you're just doing it as a courtesy. Um but there are there are many here that I suppose there aren't that many here yet, but I suppose that the ones that are here are coming in with an open mind and state and will the candidates will have the opportunity to sway people. So it's it's really it's up for grabs. But at the moment I think there are a few candidates such as or are a few councillors such as uh, Wayne Harding has already indicated that he plans to go for Sean Gallagher, who's yet to even announce. Uh independent councillor Ka- um Nick Killian has indicated that he'll be voting for Gavin Duffy, and that's before get, having the opportunity to hear from other ones yet. So it's we're really unsure what way it will go.
4: And in terms of party guidelines, I mean, the, the, the councillors clearly don't have to adhere by what their party advises.
2: No, that's that, that's the kind of the way it's being worked now. So you can vote for whoever you like. And like I said, Sharon Toland, she's a Finnegale a councillor, and she has indicated she'll vote for Gavin Duffy. When you know, I suppose nationally, the party is supporting Michael D Higgins to get another term. So they can vote whatever way they want. So it, it, there is an opportunity today for the potential candidates to to impress and maybe sway some uh, people that are unsure.
4: When will we know who's going to vote or do they even have to make that public?
2: So they will take a vote. They'll take a vote next Monday at their September monthly meeting. There won't be a vote today. There'll be an opportunity for them, I suppose, to um, get an idea of each candidate and then reflect and make a decision and then there'll be an official vote next Monday, which LMFM will be at and be able to give the information to listeners as soon as it happens.
4: And would you expect the various candidates to make public announcements today outside of the meeting?
2: In what sense?
4: In terms of will they take questions from the local media, et cetera? Or?
2: There, there's, well, the thing is is that you know, that would be ideal, but there is actually two other um, councils meeting with candidates today. So we have um, Westmead is meeting as well this afternoon in Kildare. So I think as well as it being on a time crunch from the Caheer here, they're also on a time crunch in terms of having to kind of get around the commuter belt. So hopefully maybe they will give us a few minutes, but they're definitely under pressure themselves. <laughs>
4: Well, Casey, we look forward to your reports across the news later today and Nodell we'll have a reaction tomorrow on the programme as well. That's Casey O'Reardon there who's at the Meath County Council offices in Navan, where seven different potential candidates for president will put up their case and seek the support of councillors. And of course, as you heard, Wayne Harding is already saying that he will vote for Sean Gallagher. If Sean Gallagher does indeed go ahead for a nomination to succeed Michael D. Higgins as president of Ireland. We're going to be back with the news headlines after this. Michael,
6: Michael Reid, Reid on LMFM. On LMFM. And
4: you're welcome back to The Michael Reed Show. I'm delighted to say that Marie Cairns is now in studio to read out her comments and texts. A lot of reaction to the papal visit, Marie.
8: Yes, as expected I suppose, Cahill there is a lot of reaction this morning people phoning in and also texting in Katrina was one of those and Katrina says that it can only be positive she feels that the Pope did come to Ireland because she thinks he got to realise the extent of the hurt here how people are feeling about the abuse that went on in the church but she does say that she agrees with Leo Varadkar in his speech at Dublin Castle when he more or less said we need action that words Aren't enough,
4: And that was something that John Kelly, for example, said to us earlier in the programme. And Sean Defoe made the point that as the weekend progressed, the Pope realised more and more what as the, as how much anger there was. Yes,
8: yeah, so over the weekend. Well, I suppose we we were watching every day. I don't know about you, but I was looking on the television and you were waiting to see every day what he said in his various addresses. Jimmy phoned in and Jimmy went to see the Pope yesterday in the Phoenix Park with his family. And he just says that the media as always you know, doesn't present the right portrayal of what he felt from the day. He felt that the message has been drowned out. That it was a really joyous occasion, and we're not focusing on that. He says he feels the media is so anti Pope, and that was his thoughts on well, it. we
4: did speak to Father Michael Cusack, who gave we us it gave us a very warm appreciation of his day yesterday including his blisters after walking what 15 kilometres he said that's
8: right sean from drawhada says don't underestimate the numbers at the phoenix park many didn't go because of the reasons you mentioned cahill the weather was a huge factor because they had been given out the weather forecast saying it was going to be torrential rain you couldn't bring a brolly to the park with you and the logistics of trying to get there for many people was harder and also that you had to have tickets That didn't happen the last time. So Mm. many people felt they couldn't just decide uh, at the last minute or in the last few days that they could go. And that's his thoughts on that. And health and
4: safety was a very different thing in 1979.
8: Catherine says that she's a Catholic and she's a practising Catholic, that she wasn't at any of the events over the weekend, but watched it on telly, like myself, Catherine, like many people watched it on the television. And she says she was disappointed that the Pope never uttered those two words. I'm sorry. She says he seems to be beating around the bush, asking for forgiveness uh, of all the perpetrators of wrongdoing within the church. But she didn't feel that there was too much thought for the victims.
4: There have been reports that on Saturday when he met the various representatives of the victim groups that he did say sorry then. But the Pope issued no statement after that. He said the people who were there were free to speak openly about what happened afterwards, as many of them have done. We haven't actually heard from the Catholic Church itself or from the Pope those two words, as you said
8: another listener says don't forget to mention the thousands of people who saw him in Dublin on Saturday afternoon that all people are talking about is the numbers that were in the Phoenix Park and of course he went to, to, to visit knock. the Capuchin Centre as well Correct. and we, th- there wasn't much mention about that, that but I thought that was one of the highlights for me anyway was that and then you know when he stopped at Sean McDermott Street and all of that ta- spoke with the locals and shook their hands and and I think
4: Sean Defoe was probably right when he said he's, he's a man who's more comfortable with ordinary people than he is with politicians
8: yes and I thought it was interesting too Sean Defoe's comment when you asked him you know, was it a success? And as Sean said, it depends on who you were talking to. And that is so tr- true. And Marie from Drogheda says, why did the Pope not say he would turn all these abusers over to the police? The Bible clearly states, render unto God what is God's and unto Caesar what is Caesar's, says Marie from Drogheda. Seamus McDonough got in touch and Seamus is a, a member of the Workers' Party and he
0: Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
8: He says that they held a truth and justice vigil in Navan outside the Fair Green end of St Mary's Church over the weekend and hung up some baby shoes on the wall. And he says the general consensus amongst people he spoke to was that they felt that the Pope didn't really grasp or understand. The anger that people are feeling in relation to the abuse that went on in the church. And he felt that there was a sense of disappointment that they didn't get more from the Pope in terms of accountability, that he fudged the issue. And I suppose there's a real fear that he'll move away from here and nothing further will happen.
4: And plus the events in America are going to become very Dominant in the church's thinking over the coming weeks as well.
8: That's right. Deirdre from Kells uh, also contacted us and says that she feels that the whole ticket system was wrong. And she says that uh, you had to order tickets and that she felt if there had been a distribution system through the local parish, it might have worked well. And she thinks that was a reason for a lot of people not actually going on the day.
4: There are reports, as we mentioned earlier in the programme, of people deliberately... Blocking off tickets so that somebody couldn't who wanted to go yes. wouldn't get one.
8: But as Sean said, that was kind of at the beginning, and I do think that that kind of eased off because there was other they events organised. Wasn't yes, uh, Martin phoned in, and Martin says, "I'd like to make a comment. I've been listening into your program this morning. I was in Croke Park yesterday. I was on the yellow and purple route from Castleknock and Blanche'stown. I walked four or five miles, and I'm a man who has stage four cancer." I walked in and I just feel listening that the media exaggerates a lot of stuff that it, that's not true and it just annoys me. And he says that, for starters, he said nobody he could see was really checking tickets, that people could win whether they had tickets or not. He said where he was, there was a huge flow of people going in and out. And he says, I was really happy to be there. It was the second Pope to see in my, my lifetime. Uh, I was at Pope John Paul in Drahada, that was just a killing ear outside Drahada. And he says, I was just very touched by the Pope Francis word words in the Phoenix Park and he says I understand about child ch- clerical abuse and of course it was wrong he says and I believe that those who committed these crimes should be named and shamed and I believe that they should be prosecuted. But I do have a worry about people in this age of compo culture, of people coming forward and maybe making allegations that aren't true.
4: Well, I think John Kelly from the Survivors of Child Abuse, I think his big desire is to see justice.
8: And he also says that he doesn't feel that uh, the Catholic Church should be the only ones held responsible for what went on in the laundries years ago. He says that society and the state was also involved in the cover up and mentions also the Gardaí and where was their place in all of this. So there was a lot of points that he wanted to make. But overall, he says that he was very happy to be in the Phoenix Park and he left feeling Very good,
4: and that's entirely the man is very entitled to that, and I'm glad he did.
8: Another listener was in touch uh, to say that watched a lot of programmes uh, over the weekend. Uh, on the pub's visit you swear it was the only thing happening in the world
4: (laughs) it was nearly the only thing happening in Ireland everything everything else was put off the weekend. anyway I have no doubt we'll be back to this over the coming days Marie.
8: Yes yes there's there's lots more talking points Carl Now
4: a very big talking point for those people who live around the Windmill uh, Road and Annaville Crescent area of Drogheda is parking and joining us on the line to discuss this now is Caroline Gormley. Caroline good morning to you
9: Morning how are you?
4: Uh, Has the situation improved in any way whatsoever for your residents, Carolyn?
9: No, 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 not at all, no. Um, We've been campaigning now for six months, and um, bylaws, regardless of uh, what happened, um, it's just no improvement at all, no let-up at all.
4: Now, you're going to meet with councillors tonight. Is that meeting still going ahead?
9: It is still going ahead, yeah. Um. And uh, what we're going to do is we're lobbying them tonight informally, Um, We had a meeting with uh, the county manager last week and uh, we were told it is possible for residents only in whatever shape or form it's possible for them to write into their bylaws uh, measures that will relieve the congestion um, on Windmill Road. Um, it It was agreed that there would be bollards put up on the access road from Windmill Road to Anvil Crescent to, to relieve congestion there, so that that's a, a step in the right direction.
4: Part of the reason, Caroline, to people who may not be that familiar with Tralee, part of the reason that you guys get so congested is you're right beside the hospital.
9: Yeah, it's, it's on our doorsteps. Um this makes it very unique and and quite serious, especially when repeatedly we see ambulances not being able to to get to the hospital through Windmill Road, uh, reversing into Boa Brewer. Um, and also, neighbours of ours have had problems with ambulances not being able to get to them on the street. <laughs> so, um, this this point, it seems to be sort of neglected, and, and we think it's of, of great importance. Um, even on Friday, the the football team couldn't get up the road because uh, because there's a bottleneck down the bottom of the street near where the Hughes is.
4: This is T United you know people.
9: Yeah, and if people park on the double lines, double yellow lines there that there's, there's absolutely no way that a wider vehicle can get through and we we have so sort of collecting footage of all of these things when we can um, and we have heard that um it is is a real problem for emergency staff
4: on a day-to-day basis what it it, it must be a nightmare to live there now is it
9: it is because um you can't you can't guarantee well <laughs> it's the impossibility of leaving the house if you have if you have your car there you have to plan your day around when you're going to leave the house and and stuff like that. It's it's just it's just uh, your life is sort of run like your kids and shopping. I, was going and to say
4: that, I mean, at this time of the year, with the kids about to go to school. If if you if you leave your house at half eight to bring your children to school, for example, I'm sure by the time you get back, your space is gone.
9: Yeah, and then uh, then you have to sort of uh, park elsewhere. There's actually one of the residents is a lady in her seventies. And she actually parks her car at her daughter's in Brookville. Oh, my God, that's unbelievable. And she, whatever time of day at night, she walks back to the Windmill Road. And it's just so severe. And there's a lot of elderly people along this street who rely on family and carers. And they can't get in. Mm. It's a huge, severe problem. Did,
4: did uh, Did the free parking initiative, did that go as far as Windmill Road that time?
9: It didn't, know. No. no. Uh, for the fl- for the fly, you mean?
4: Well, even, even wasn't there a free parking initiative before? That that was only the town centre. And how did the, right. how did the fly work out for you guys?
9: Um we were sort of it's just as normal because uh, it's, it's 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 completely chocker, twenty four seven anyway. You know, you might have little pockets of of it calming down, but it's 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 just really it goes around the hospital, their hours, visiting hours, day day patients. Appointments, all those sorts of things. Um, there's, there's no let up, so it's no different for us, to be honest, because once it's full, it's full <laughs> the street. <laughs>
4: Caroline, what would you like to come out of tonight's meeting?
9: I'd like the councillors to get together and lobby on our behalf to, to make sure that Anvil Crescent get their bollards, which, which we were assured would happen. And for a solution for Windmill Road. We we know that residents only in part or totally is is in their power to implement. They can adapt their bylaws to do st- to do things that is gonna make the streets safe and we could you know, the residents can live safely and normally because um we we've petitioned them, we have sent all all households on the street have sent them statements we were into you there. Um, I think it was April, um, with 150 copies of uh, people's statements and how their lives are. Uh, we really want them to, to to review this, look at it seriously. We, we know that they have the power to change things here, and we want we really want them to concentrate on helping us find a solution.
4: Caroline Gormley there, Chairperson of the newly formed Wimmill Road and Anneville Crescent Residence Group Drada ahead of their meeting with local councillors tonight. Marie, I'm fairly sure that for as long as I've been sitting in for Michael on this programme this has been an issue.
8: It has, and I do feel so sorry for the residents because what you referred to, uh, when, that was actually, do you remember when there was a legal question mm. over the parking fees in Drogheda, and you could park anywhere, and I think the Wimel Road was affected then, but Caroline and the group, th- you know, there was a hope maybe that when that was went back to pay parking, maybe there might be a little bit... Respite. Yes, but it hasn't been the case. And when you hear that story about... The lady, I'm not sure you're you're not from the Drogheda. No. But, I mean, Bruteville is a good probably 10-minute walk if you're a, a, an old-age pensioner maybe, mm-hmm. de- you know, walk from there. And to think that somebody is leaving the car there at night and then when the nights are getting dark having to walk home because they can't get a car parking and they're space.
4: And they're not even taking the chance on getting a car space.
8: The, you know, something has to be done about that. And hopefully there will be some kind of resolution tonight at that meeting. But I know, Caroline, they're hoping for a good turnout of local residents in that area to go along. But look, Carl, we'll finish on that.
4: And if you have a comment, 086 1800 658 is our text number, 086 1800 658. Also our WhatsApp number, I'm now told. We'll be back after this break.
6: Michael, Michael Reed
4: on LMFM. This is the Michael Reed Show. Cahill Dervin of the Irish Sun sitting in for Michael this week and it is, as always, a pleasure to have your company. Many schools go back to work today, many students go back to school and for many parents it's an anxious time because of the issue of transport. This is particularly prevalent in Kildalki and County Meath at the moment. We're going to speak to two parents and to Councillor Noel French in a second but we're going to begin with Una Sword who's a parent from the Kildalki area from my view. Una, good morning to you.
10: Good morning Cahill, how are you?
4: Well, now you've two daughters now of secondary school age. Quiva, who's 13, uh, who's about to start school in Trim, and Aoife, who's 17, has been in Trim for the last four years. Tell us your
6: story.
10: OK, um, well, as you know, as you said there, um, Aoife's been in school there since 2014 and has been taking this bus in the morning every day. Um, and we were informed by bus Erin uh, there in August to say that uh, they actually cannot accommodate her on the bus now as well as her sister, who actually started this morning in Skullwera, you know. So, obviously, we were very, very upset about
4: that. So, for the last four years, Aoife has been going on a bus and bus from Kildarki into Skullwera in Trim. That's correct. And you were provided with... Now, by the way, you paid €300 Euros up front for the ticket, if I'm correct?
10: Um, well, the ticket now for two, for two pupils would be €650 Euro for the year, you know. So, and, um, and
4: you pay and that we, up front?
10: We paid. Yeah, we paid in advance. We paid. Um, you, ca- you have two options. You can pay for the entire um, year, or you can pay up until Christmas and then pay the balance there. And that's what we did. We just paid for up until Christmas, and then the balance obviously would be paid off then.
4: And it would be fairly right to think that after four years of traveling on that bus if it would be getting another seat on the bus for another year. And they've. Acce- well,
10: I would have thought so. And,
4: and they accepted your money. Yeah.
10: Uh, yeah, uh, and not only my money, but uh, um, a lot of other families in the area as well uh, who have at- actually no seats either. They took the money in advance, never gave any indication that there was any issue at all. And uh, it was only uh, there just two weeks before the children were due to go back that we were informed that they could not be accommodated on the bus.
4: So what happened this morning, Anna?
10: So this morning I drove, because uh, Cuevas starts today, first years are in today, and we drove Cueva in this morning. And, um, well, we would would have done that anyway, but we did that for mm. our other kids, you know, for the first day, day. School, as uh, I would say the majority of parents do. But know? are
4: you in a position to drive your kids to school every day?
10: I um, At the moment, yes, but I am looking for work. You know, I had mm. intended to go back to work this year, so this is obviously going to jeopardise that in respect of the type of uh, contract I could get, you know what I mean? I, it, you know, when you're trying to accommodate a school run into your day as well as whatever, you know, you're kind of limiting yourself to what you could apply for, really.
4: So as of now, neither Cueva nor Eva have a seat on the bus. Nope. nope. Carl Stewart also joins us from Kildalki. Carl, good morning to you.
1: Good morning, Carl. Are you? Can
4: you tell us about your daughter's story, please, Carl?
1: Uh, my daughter is on the bus from Kildalki into Trim every year. Um, Starts at the same time as Una's. Editor. Aoife, yeah. Yeah. Um, we've been told we, we have a ticket, we haven't received it as yet, but um, it's not so much myself that I'm on about, it's just I think the whole system needs to be looked at, and rather than kind of a witch hunt, it's solution-based. Hmm. for.
4: Well, when does your home. daughter return to school?
1: She returns on Thursday this week.
4: And as of this moment, you don't know if she's on the bus or she's not on the bus?
1: We've been told she is on the bus, we haven't been told she's not on the bus as mm-hmm. yet, and they did take our money in, 350 quid.
4: So that, that and that's gone out of your account, and that's gone since July, yes. So you would hope that and on the back of that you will have a ticket?
1: I would hope so, yes.
4: yeah. Councillor Noel French is a Fine Councillor on Meath County Council. Councillor, good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Carl. This seems to be an issue in Kildalki this year, but it's it's been across many other parts of Meath, hasn't it?
11: It has been in in Beliver a couple of years ago. It's a ridiculous situation where uh, the one school is half a mile shorter to get to than another school. And it depends then whether you get a concessionary ticket or not. This is impacting on 14 families. It's not just one or two. So, uh, it's, and parents are under enough stress getting their children ready to go back to school. And you know, there is in Una's uh, daughter attending the school for the last four years uh, now. Uh, she'd get free transport probably to uh, the other school in in the vicinity, which is a half a mile shorter. Because, as as far
4: as the Department of Education are concerned, the local catchment school is in that boy, not in Trim. That's it, exactly. But and would people, that would, would that bus be free? I would presume so, uh,
11: because she would be within uh, that uh, that area. Uh, but uh, I, 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 because you get your your tickets on uh, to the nearest preschool school, uh, the nearest uh, uh, second level education school. So, and that boy is half a mile shorter. But then it depends on which road you come from, Believer. Uh, it's a mile longer if you go the good road. It's a half mile mile shorter if you uh, go the bad road. So, it's it's a bit of a ridiculous situation to think that fourteen families are uh, under this stress and pressure going back to school. And I really would call on Boss Aaron to rethink. Uh, Thanks be to goodness uh, they rethought uh, when we had a similar situation in Beliver. And I'm just calling for them to see sense uh, on this situation as well. You know, parents are under enough stress at this time of year without being thrown into this sort of turmoil uh, two or three weeks before their children go back to school.
4: Una, can I ask you what happens now? I mean, do, do you have to try and find alternative transport? Do you have to get together with those other parents and try and get a private bus? What's next?
10: Well, we we looked at the option of a private bus, but it, it was working out very expensive, Cahill. You know, you're talking forty forty euro per child per week. You know, and we're talking about not, not even ten kilometres of a trip. Do you know, so to me now that is very expensive. Hmm. Um, and there there are a couple of families here who you know the parents are actually um, working full time. They're working shift work, so they're they're actually leaving the house very early in the morning and not back until later so they can't commit to a school run and
4: was, know, Kildarki, In Kildalki yeah. a lot of the developments in Kildalki were sold as being a commuter town to Dublin weren't they?
10: Yeah well there, there are five estates here in this village and there are three that have over 40 houses in them you know what I mean and the average family around here have three children you know now I had a look at the census to see roughly how um, much the population has increased so in 2006 there were 518 people living in this area. In 2016 there's 708. You know, so that's an increase by 190 and more now because there've been new families that have moved in. And in no, and
4: no doubt Europe. there's so much building going on and made at the moment yeah. that that's bound yeah. to come your way very soon as
10: Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And then um but they have a category uh, there for ages um, between the age of 10 and 19 years which would be where we we're, we're talking about there's 126 kids.
4: And they need to go to school.
10: Yeah, and the majority go to Trim.
4: Carl, can I ask you, uh, were you, were you told that if you went to At Boy there would be no charge?
1: I was told that our, our catchment school is At Boy, but the difference being, Carl, that there is no all-girls school in mm-hmm. Boy. And if you want to send your, your daughter to an all-girls school, Trim is the nearest. And we, we have communication from the principal of school, we in Trim. And she has said that Kildarki National School has always been classified as a feeder school for school wear and trim. Mm.
4: What do you think is going to happen next, Carl?
1: Well, it's, 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 a, it's a, a simple solution would be to look at the resources in place, see what resources are needed. And if more are needed, just put them in place. You know, if more buses are needed, bus errands should get onto the Department of Education and say, we need so many more buses to feed. And it's not just Kildarki. It's not just Meath. This is a national problem. And whatever resources are needed should be just put in place. The children don't need this pressure going into secondary school for a first time or going into leaving cert. They've enough stuff on their plate without worrying about how to get to school.
4: So do you guys have to go back to Bus Aaron now and see what's going to happen next? Or do you have to make pleas to them almost to get your children onto these buses? Well,
1: Bus Aaron and the Department of Education seem to be happy enough just to send us a standard email that's copy and pasted. Just, they just change the name on the top of it. So we've met brick walls everywhere, and we've approached our local councillors, we've approached our local TDs, and everyone seems to be saying, this is a ridiculous situation, but nobody has a solution as yet.
4: We did ask Aaron for a uh, comment, they've yet to come back to us. Noel French, can I ask you what the the local councillors, what local government can do on this?
11: What we can do is represent the views of the people, and uh, uh, Carl is quite right. This uh, seems to happen in various areas around the country at this time of the year, uh, every year. So if it is a problem every single year, then why can't bus errand decide to do something about it? Or are they just trying to limit uh, bus transport in an area? And if they are successful and nobody says uh, boo to them, then they go ahead and do it. But where people say boo, they have to fight hard to uh, get something that they should be entitled to, really.
4: So just to conclude, Una, as far as you're concerned, you don't have a place for either of your daughters on that bus?
10: At the moment, certainly not. And there doesn't seem to be any resolution as of yet.
4: And Carl, you would be confident that your daughter will go back to school on Thursday on the school bus?
1: I would hope so. Like, we're not looking for the Minister to build us a new secondary school in Kildalki. We're just looking for him to bring our children into school. Mm.
4: And to the school of your choice.
1: And to the school of our choice. But it's not a million miles away. It's the nearest girls' school.
4: Our thanks to Una Sword, to Carl Stewart and to Councillor Noel French there on the bus crisis in the Kildalki region. We'll be back after this.
6: Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. on LMFM.
4: And we do indeed welcome all your comments. Our text number, as always, 086 1800 658. 086 1800 658, which is also our WhatsApp number. We're also available across Twitter at LMFM Radio and across Facebook. If you have any comments you'd like to make on the papal visit, on the reaction there you heard earlier in the programme from John Kelly, uh, from Father Michael Cusick, and from Sean Defoe. Any comments on any of that or even the Kildalki bus crisis, the school reopening in Dundalk, please do give us a call and we will be happily. Read out your comments tomorrow when Marie is back in studio with us. Now, a big subject in the news again this weekend is Brexit. You will have heard in our headlines that a UCC economist has warned that an old deal Brexit is becoming more likely. Dr. Declan Jordan says there is very little evidence that the UK government will agree on a deal with the EU and he says that this will leave the Irish economy in a precarious position. One man who will be able to tell us exactly how precarious that is is Ronan Foley who is the AIB Brexit adviser for the Loud Region. Ronan, good morning to you. Good morning, Carl. Would you agree with Dr. Declan Jordan that there is very little evidence the UK government is ready to do a deal with the EU?
12: That seems to be the case as time goes on, and I suppose it's the it's the uncertainty that that's having most impact on 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 the SME and the the, the wider economy as a whole, uh, Cahill, um, And that's probably evident from the the latest you know survey that we have done.
4: We, we'll come back to that in a second, but I mean this this is literally upon us now. I mean, for for when the first vote was taken in Britain to leave the EU, it seemed like it was an eternity down the road, but it is now around the corner.
12: Absolutely. The one thing that we do know is that um, Britain will leave the EU on the 29th of March 2019.
4: Come hell or um, high water.
12: Come hell or high water at the moment. And that, that's, that, that's the way it, it looks. That's that's what happened when Article 50 was triggered on the 29th of March this year.
4: Now tell us your role with AIB, Ronan.
12: Okay, in AAB we've got uh, Brexit advisors across the, the country and I suppose our role, Cahill, is is to, to, to talk with our customers, encourage them to try and develop a plan and try and be part of that plan as well to, to deal with the potential effects and, and impact of, of Brexit. I suppose in Louth and Cavan Monaghan, which is always, also part of my area, we are um, severely impacted or potentially severely impacted because of our proximity to the to the border.
4: And many of your customers will be small to medium enterprises who would have a lot of cross-border business.
12: Correct. Um, and, you know, I suppose the, if, from, from the very small to the, the, the higher end of the SMEs, there's a, a huge reliance both on an import and export basis to, to Northern Ireland and the, the, and, and the UK.
4: And, of course, then for the ordinary man in the street, if you're, if you're crossing the border, if you're doing business on either side of the border, by the looks of it, Sterling is heading towards parity with the euro.
12: It's hard to know where currencies are going to go, but it's definitely a, a concern. It's one of the concerns that SMEs do have, uh, the, the fluctuations. You know, we saw what happened currencies following the the, the, the result of the referendum in the UK um, where it had a massive impact overnight on, on, certain, on many businesses that were both importing and exporting uh, from the UK.
4: Now, you mentioned yourself there earlier that you have recently undertaken a survey of your customers. What's the headline figures from this?
12: Yeah, I suppose the headline figures is that, you know, it, despite the fact that 80, I think it's about 82% of businesses say that they're not seeing any real impact on sales at the moment. 70% of SMEs tell us that, the, the, that Brexit will have a negative um, economic in, impact. Um, but I suppose more concerning is that only 6% of those customers, uh, 6% of those businesses have developed a plan um, and have a plan in place to deal with Brexit.
4: Even though we're only six, less than six months now, away.
12: Um, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that, that's the harsh reality. And I suppose, Carl you have to understand that uh, we all have to understand that there is so, really so much uncertainty. It's really difficult to develop a plan at the moment, not knowing what Brexit is going to look like with the, you know, the ongoing negotiations between the EU and UK um, and, and where that's going to sit, particularly around hard borders and all that there kind of thing.
4: Well, you mentioned 6% of Republic of Ireland businesses have a formal Brexit business across the border in the north. Only 5% have a plan.
12: That's right, and um, some of the, the figures from the, the the north is you know I suppose they they also have a a fairly I think it's forty five percent had plans of SMEs in the north had plans to invest or have curtailed plans to invest um, because of Brexit as well. So you know it, it, throughout across the island of Ireland there's 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 a massive impact, and I suppose it's, you know we're probably the the part of Europe that that that, that does is going to be impacted more than more than most.
4: What's your warning to businesses, and who haven't be, even begun to plan for this?
12: I suppose it's more a, a, an advice, Cahill, than a warning. Sorry. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, uh, the advice is that really, you know, it's not too late. There are many resources available to you, both through ourselves and AAB, your own financial advisors, Enterprise Ireland, local enterprise office, and uh, Intertrade Ireland. There's some really good resource available there um, to, to talk to all those advisors, you know, you can call them experts, but I suppose it's very difficult to be an expert on something that we don't, um, we don't know, really know what, it, what it's going to look like yet. But the the main advice that we can give is just, look, we're asking businesses to prepare for a worst-case scenario here. If it's better than that, the business is leaner, the business is better prepared. But, uh, you know, we, we do have to look at worst-case scenario here. And that's not trying to scare monger, that's just a a harsh reality, Cahill.
4: And your sentiment index uh, for Q2 says that 58% of SMEs in the Republic believe Brexit will have a negative impact on future business and 70% believe it will have a negative wider economic impact. I mean, that's a very realistic approach from those businesses, isn't it?
12: It is a realistic approach but then I suppose, the you know, going back to the the, the lower number then again, Cahill, only 6% have a, have a plan in place mm. um, and, and that's the concerning piece but again, you know, largely understandable given the the, the lack of progress in negotiations to date.
4: And even at that, the sectors that are are likely to have a plan in place are, qu- are quite obvious, food and drink, tourism and transport. I mean, they are all people who will be affected almost immediately by this. Correct. Um,
12: you know, so, uh, I suppose, you know, what's going to impact um, on, on businesses? Currency is obviously one. Uh, tariffs, potential tariffs coming into place, another hard border and non non-tariff barriers is, is another is another piece here but you know the, the wider impact okay SMEs will often look at what, what directly impacts them both from a, an import and export but also you know we would suggest to SMEs that they need to look at their supply chain further up the line or further down the line as well in terms of where their goods ultimately go to or come from.
4: Somebody was telling me that in a bottle of Baileys for example the milk will cross the border five times. I don't know if you're aware of that or not I
12: wasn't aware of that but you know I suppose anecdotally anecdotally, uh, talking to one of my colleagues in Monaghan last week and he had been talking to a a bread delivery guy who he himself crosses the border five or six times in any one day
4: It is quite incredible that we're so close to this Ronan and we still really don't know what's going to happen and it's going to be upon us before we even know about it. Where can people go for advice? I mean, you're, you're obviously, as you say, you look after Kevin Monahan and L, but I'm sure AIB have these advisors in all your branches across the country.
12: We do, you know, we've a, a business advisory team in, in, in any of our branches and we're more than happy to discuss the what we can do, both from, you know, working capital and cash flow, which is something that probably businesses aren't all looking at too much at, at the moment. They're more concerned with the the, the more, you know, the, the higher impact stuff, such as the, the, the tariffs and hard borders and all the rest, but working capital and cash flow is going to be a key piece. Other than that, uh, Cahill, your local enterprise office are well-equipped to, to advise and provide uh, tools and resources as well as Enterprise Ireland and Intertrade Ireland, I have to say, have a fantastic website available and a fantastic Brexit team uh, that, that are, are willing to discuss and provide grant aid and support through, through that mechanism too.
4: And as you said, it's not too late to start planning
12: not at all it, it's it's not too late but you know going back to what you were saying it is it is it is amongst us now at this stage it's a, mm-hmm. a very short time until the 29th of March next year but most definitely not too late
4: and what maybe
12: advice is to start the
4: plan though. And maybe if we know a few politicians we might give them a word as well and ask them to read exactly. it Yeah, we'll, we'll leave
12: the, the, the politics to the politicians on this one yeah. but yeah, no, absolutely there's, there's a lot to go on this one yet.
4: Well, I'm looking at a story in, in my own paper this morning where Simon Coveney has lashed out at the uh, Jacob Rees mog over his Irish border comments that her branded the Conservative MP so ill-informed that her video emerged of him calling for inspections at the border following Brexit. So, Roland, I'm sure this is something that will interest your clients over the coming days but we thank you so much for your time this morning. That's Roland AIB's Brexit advisor for loud. and as you heard from Ronan there, it's never too late to plan, even if we don't know what's going to happen with Brexit come the end of March. Michael,
6: Michael
4: Reed on, on LMFM, FM. and we're into the final segment of this morning's Michael Reed show. We're going to discuss. Alcoholic consumption, uh, particularly amongst females in Ireland, after a report issued on Friday, showed that women in Ireland consume an average of three alcoholic drinks a day and rank higher than men here in a global table of alcohol consumption. The table for males says that the greatest number of drinks, and this is in units, is Romania... First, Portugal second, Luxembourg third, and no sign of Ireland in the top ten there. But amongst females, Ukraine is number one, followed by Andorra, Luxembourg, Belarus, Sweden, Denmark. And coming in at number seven is Ireland, followed closely by the UK, Germany and Switzerland. Joining me to discuss this now is Eunan McKinney, who is the Head of Communications and Advocacy with Alcohol Action Ireland. Good morning, Eunan.
13: Good morning, Carl. Thanks very much for having me
4: on. You're more than welcome. Are you surprised by these figures, Eunan?
13: Well, i not really, in so much as that we know that there, the trend has been that there's a an increase or a spike in, in the in the consumption of alcohol amongst women in in the last sort of fifteen twenty years, and largely that's down to I mean there's a couple of factors that need to be kind of brought into the debate, and one is that obviously women traditionally were at a very low base and didn't drink at all largely in some respects so that, you know they're, they're, they're starting to play catch up in relation to their male counterparts but considerably way behind their male counterparts at the same time um, and the other point is that like the data describes women in in a European country and we have to remember all the time that Europe is the outlier in, in global terms I mean Europe drinks twice as much as, as the global averages and, and in that context it kind of falls in there but there is a distinct problem are an issue with women in their early 20s and women in their early 50s in relation to the high spikes in alcohol. Um, so that, is, that, is, that, that in itself is concerning because as the report identifies, is what it's trying to um, identify for people is the level of risk uh, associated with the consum- that level of consumption of alcohol. And
4: of course, a lot of women this week and mothers will be preparing to bring their children back to school uh, and will be under a lot of stress and will think that they're quite entitled to go home and have a glass of wine. And you guys aren't necessarily against that
13: idea. Well, we're not against it. We've never been in the in the business of abstinence and never been in the business of, of, of uh, you know, uh, ensuring that people didn't drink at all. We, you know, we, we have to understand the world we live in. And, you know, the, the, the mantra has always been that that uh, whilst um, less is good, none is better. Uh, I think in the context of where we're at and where understanding the landscape we are operating, we, we've always been of the view that less is, is, is better. You know, that's what we're trying to promote. And things like the Public Alcohol Bill, which, you know, we have spoke about on, on this programme before, I mean, the Public Alcohol Bill is essentially a significant endeavour by the state to try and induce a lower level of consumption amongst the whole of population.
4: Just remind us us what the mechanics of that are.
13: Well, the mechanics of that are what what the bill seeks to do is to bring in a a variety of regulations which will curb the demand for alcohol. So things like trying to establish a minimum unit price for some of the the cheapest, strongest alcohol that's available in the market, uh, restrictions on how alcohol is actually marketed and how it's promoted, And also how how alcohol is available. I mean, as we know, alcohol is largely ubiquitous now, you know, and that's a significant change as well. It's become an everyday grocery item, whereas 20 years ago that just simply wasn't the case. And we know that the consumption of alcohol has gravitated hugely from what was traditionally a pub activity to now a domestic activity.
4: And that, that landscape has changed utterly. Dramatically, utterly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you, if you think back, I'm enough to remember back in the 70s and 80s, but I mean, there were very few off-licences. Exactly. The odd pub would sell, give you something to buy on your way out the door, maybe.
13: Exactly.
4: But nowadays, it's, it's, part, it's as easy to buy a, a bottle of wine as it is to buy a litre of milk.
13: Yeah, and we know that that is largely because, you know, at a time, rightly or wrongly, you know, in a prior period of time when there was a great liberalisation of a lot of um, restrictive trade issues in the late 90s and into the uh, into the early part of the century, the market liberalised dramatically. And we, we we saw a rise of off licences, uh, you know, to the tune of around four or five hundred percent, an increase in the board, and even the most recent study, I think, we've, our most recent. Uh, output from the op- from the on-trade people. I heard the vintners last week talking about continually de- uh, demonstrate the height of of uh, off licences that are continuing to come into the marketplace. So now we can purchase alcohol literally in every small shop, convenience store, petrol station, um, and it's 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 a significant driver of some of these these dimensions that we're talking about. And obviously, the sophistication of marketing, particularly towards women. Um, has you know, the alcohol industry has identified that there's a, a fresh market in women's consumption. And remember, women's consumption is still 65% below what men's is. You know, men continue to drink out, drink women by at least three to one. All the all the health outcomes related to that, men outcomes are far worse. You know, their death rates are far worse because of alcohol. Uh, their partial attribution in relation to alcohol disease is again higher, and also in the context of the, the level of, consu- level of cont- contribution to what are harmful drinkers, men, outweigh women two to one. Yeah. So it shouldn't, it, we shouldn't necessarily, I mean, we, we clearly have a spike in relation to women's consumption, but... You <laughs> shouldn't forget our, about the men. Uh, don't forget about our men, because our men are, are, are far, far, you know, 65% is a, is a significant volume above women.
4: And one of the factors as well, Eunan, that as, as a society, uh, we almost saw it as part of our growing up, coming out of the 80s, that, you know, now we can be like the Continentals, we can have a glass of wine with our dinner, we can have a glass of wine whenever we feel like. I mean, that was something that those who were lucky enough to travel in the pre ryanair days would have sampled abroad, but it wasn't necessarily something in Ireland where the majority of drinking, let's face it, was done in the pub and was done predominantly by men.
13: Yeah, and, and definitely there has been that, that definite shift um, in relation to how, how we're consuming alcohol, as we discussed earlier, definitely that availability of it, the simple availability and the cheapness of it. I mean, we, we last, in, in recent weeks we've we've published a, a survey in relation to just how affordable alcohol is in, in the industry, and we've spoken about it, I think, on air uh, at the time, and that's, that coupled with its availability is the key driver of it. And in, in, when it becomes that, that 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 available and that cheap well then of course people are are picking it up you know but again I think one of the things one of the things we'd like to talk about or certainly highlight because of this particular report is what, what it's trying to identify for people and which people don't necessarily appreciate is just the level of risk that is attached with alcohol consumption. And one of the things we spoke about earlier, the, the idea of the Public Health Alcohol Bill, one of the measures in the bill is that it would ensure that all alcohol products have a certain amount of information placed on them, especially in relation to health warnings, And this similar, is a very important... Similar bulletin. to cigarettes. Exactly. Now, these this isn't a silver bullet, but what it does do is it does help to inform the citizen in relation to the risk. And reports like this, and you covering it, thankfully, uh, gives people an opportunity to, to really sit back and think just what is the risk attached in in relation to the alcohol that I'm consuming? And what, what this is saying is there are clearly deep impacts on our health outcomes in relation to the level of consumption of alcohol. And if we continue to drink alcohol the way we're doing, we're going, we, we continue to harbour great, great health-related harms for ourselves.
4: Remind us what the acceptable level of alcohol consumption per week is.
13: Well, what the HSE and Department of Health guidelines suggests is that if you want to engage in alcohol, you should do so at a low-risk level, and that's somewhere be- beneath 11 units for women and 17 units are standard drinks for men
4: and a glass of wine as per the pub glass not per the glass in your kitchen is how many units
13: just about just a little under two standard drinks and that would be the standard glass of in a wine. pub a yes. 187 milliliters yes. but in actual fact it's a hundred, just a little less than 100 milliliters depending on the strength of the, the wine that you'd be drinking but it's about a, a, a standard drink of wine is about 90 to 100 milliliters of, of wine and a pint of beer a pint of beer is two standard drinks
4: so there's not a lot of room there
13: there's not a lot of room, but I mean, it's all about. I mean, let's go back to the earlier point. It, it, less is less is better, and none is best. But it is up to you. I mean, it, it, you know, we've had this debate before. I mean, in the context of people's choice. I mean, mm. you have to. But for people to make a choice, they have to be informed, and that's the key point that we would like to kind of make today. Is that you know you can't expect people to understand the risk unless they clearly understand what it's all about, and and therefore things like the public health alcohol bill that. Ensures that proper regulate, with proper regulation, that information is clearly displayed on products. That's a starting point. That where, where, is, where is that bill at the minute? It's just, it's just gone before the summer recess. It went through committee stage, and it now is at waiting in dolls to. Conclude report on final stage. So it's just two steps to go. It's very close. Like it really is very hmm. close. But it's a thousand days now. It's a thousand days since that bill was introduced to the House, and you know, in that time, two thousand seven hundred people have died. Um, so it's, its 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 urgency is 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 very real. You know.
4: Finally, Eunan, if people would like more information, can you direct them to a website?
13: Well, certainly in the context of some of the concerns that we would have, you could certainly go to our our website, which is alcoholireland.ie. But if, if you have concerns about the level of consumption that you have and to understand that, you should visit askaboutalcohol.ie, which is a proper matrix on it in relation to understanding the units and the consumption that you may be taking and the harm that you're inducing on yourself.
4: Hewn McKinney, Head of Communications and Advocacy with Alcohol Action Ireland. Thank you for your time this morning. Marie.
8: I'm
13: back.
4: You're back.
8: <laughs> yes, I'm back. Lots of comments still coming in on the papal visit. John from Navin phoned in. He was in Croke Park on Saturday in the Cusack stand and he says it was one of the most outstanding evenings he has ever had the pleasure of enjoying in his 75 years on this earth. He says a great credit to all the organisers, everyone involved. It was such a lovely atmosphere and outstanding evenings entertainment. He did have one gripe and that was that he felt too much emphasis was placed on health and safety. People not being allowed to bring a brolly or a chair. And he feels that that probably did prevent people from going Go the Park, uh, yes, on right. Sunday. Mm. That precautions did put people off. He says there were four times as many there when the Pope came the last time but yet people were still able to manage to get there and everything worked out okay but he had a wonderful day Jane and Dunlear nothing the Pope can say or do to change the horrific behaviour of priests and nuns in this country people have been sent to jail for less says Jane another text from a listener was at the papal mass and thought it was a wonderful experience to see so many families there young and elderly walking to the park it was truly wonderful for for me, people are fantastic, says this listener. Ridiculous, though, says Maria, that the roads were closed off and everyone had to make other arrangements just because the Pope was in town. So Maria Dublin, had, went, Dublin went into lockdown. <laughs> Dublin did go into lockdown. Maria didn't have any interest in it and she doesn't see why everybody had to suffer because of it.
4: Well, I've no doubt we'll have many more comments before we're back on air tomorrow morning, just after nine o'clock. My thanks to you, Maria.
8: No problem, Carl. Pleasure
4: to be back in the chair with you today. My thanks also to Maggie and to Chris. Sinead Brazil is up next with the Mid Morning Show. We'll see you back bright and early tomorrow morning. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie. Even
0: on a budget, quality is non negotiable.